Hi there, welcome to the GXM podcast. We explore news and topics around video game music and the intersection between the games and music industries. We aim to publish fortnightly, so please be sure to subscribe and please do spread the word. My name's Tom Quilfell. I work for game soundtrack label Laced Records and podcast with the Kane and Rince crew. My name is Matt Ombler. I am head of game and music partnerships at Laced Records, and I have also spent the last 10 years writing about video game music, which is as geeky as it sounds. Tom, before we get into the very geeky world of game awards season and all of the game soundtracks that are up for awards, what have you been playing or listening to this week? So the multiplayer and co-op odyssey continues. I started It Takes Two with uh, my wife and we both really enjoyed it. I, I don't have anything to say about the music per se because I can't remember it because we were shouting at each other so much <laughs> over the top of it. I mean, that is the problem with music in co-op games, I guess. And uh, I also played uh, some Earth Defense Force 5 with a co-op buddy because we've been flailing around trying to find something after um, basically completing the Division 2, which was excellent. And everything else since then hasn't been hasn't quite fit the bill. But Earth Defense Force 5 has the most insane dialogue, soundtrack, everything. It is just so over the top. Japanese starship troopers turned out to 11 <laughs> with the most bonk the, the the soldiers in it just say the most insane things it's ridiculous i think it's supposed to be you know over the top and on the nose at the same time so i actually recommend it to people even though it's completely bonkers what have you been playing i have of course still been sinking through Baldur's Gate 3 I'm sure we'll discuss this briefly later on, which is up for several Game of the Year awards um, because it is truly an incredibly... It's just brilliant. It's so, so good. But I also found some time to dive into Cadence of Hyrule. There's basically an indie game called Crypts of the Necrodancer, which is a combination of like a rhythm game and an action game. It did quite well. Ended up being essentially reskinned as a Zelda game through a partnership with Nintendo, which is absolutely wild because Nintendo obviously does not partner with many third-party studios, least so when it comes to letting them play with their IP and stuff. So it's amazing. You essentially traverse the same map as The Legend of Zelda, A Link to the Past, um, but you've got to move to the beat, you've got to attack to the beat, but... The music in the game is ridiculous. There's Danny B, isn't it? Danny Baranowski. Yeah, so they've done this, again, paying homage to like the music in Zelda. You've got some really big names in like the video game music community, like the cover community working on it. So alongside Danny B, you've also got... Um, Family Jewels, you know, the guitarist who does like loads of metal covers. You've got Chipzel as well, who is renowned for like her chiptune music. So you've got all of these really talented like musicians 
remixing this music in a variety of different genres, uh, Family Jewels, as you'd imagine, like heavy metal, metalcore renditions of the Zelda music that everyone knows and loves. Chipzill gives it like this 8-bit treatment of music that comes later in the series that we've never really heard that way before. There's loads of other stuff going on. There's a surprising amount of like club music in it that's actually decent and not cheesy. Do you know what I mean? Like you think club music, uh, a load of like house remixes or trans remixes of Zelda music, like that stuff normally sucks, but it is really, really good. For anyone listening who hasn't played the game, like do yourself a favor, just listen to the soundtrack online, especially if you're a fan of the Zelda music in general, because honestly, some of some of the remixes and arrangements are brilliant. They're fantastic. Presumably you're saying on YouTube because there hasn't been an official soundtrack no. release. There's no vinyl, no Spotify, nothing like that, which I suppose is the price of the partnership uh, in that sense. Um, and I guess it keep kind of maybe in a, in a weird way kind of keeps focus on the game. Like it's a music game. Come come to the game to hear the music in context in its in its sort of finest form. I mean, I it's worked because I literally bought the game <laughs> to like experience the music pretty much. And it is honestly like I was playing it through with Zach, who's done the music for this podcast. And we, we, we had those moments where we were just pausing the game and just taking in the music and just looking at each other, just like, are you hearing this? <laughs> like, this is, this is really good. So yeah, it really is worth checking out. Awesome. I, I really hope to one day. It's one of the ones I could play in front of the kids, so I might get to it. Okay, we're going to move on to the news. It's dominated by awards news, but first, we cannot have an episode without mentioning Fortnite. So, Matt, <laughs> take it away. This, I was not expecting it all snoop dogg is launching a game studio with his son called death row games specializing in games made for fortnite using the games unreal editor i guess just to give some wider context for people that might not be aware a couple of months ago fortnite released its Unreal Editor, which means that you can now, if you know your way around Unreal, you can develop experiences and games in Fortnite the same way that people have been doing so in Roblox for years. So this is basically Fortnite positioning itself alongside Roblox as a major competitor in the user-generated content space. Did not for a second imagine that Snoop Dogg would want a slice of that pie, but here we are. But I mean, to be honest, like, I'm not sure if you've watched his streams, but he is like, he's a big gamer. He streams regularly on Switch. I think there's quite a lot of viral videos of him just getting really angry and throwing his like controller at the ground. I think one of the games was <laughs> Dark Souls, where he basically rage quit. But I'm looking forward to seeing what they put out. I'm guessing this is going to be 
in partnership with other developers rather than Snoop teaching himself Unreal Editor and building games himself. Um, also worth mentioning that there is obviously a long link between video games and Snoop Dogg. Um, he's featured in loads of video games with his own likeness. He has also written a hilarious number of original tunes for video games, namely a custom song for Need for Speed where he just ba- the lyrics are just basically like check out this fast car look at the rims it's like <laughs> it's like games brand marketing sounds like he understood the assignment uh, he definitely Snoop understood the assignment but yeah well, what do you make out of all of this I think it's pretty cool I think Snoop Dogg is one of the elder statesmen of music pop music at this point and for him to be so interested in video games continually over the decades kind of blazes a trail really I can't think of many musicians over the age of 50 who are that invested in video games and championing them and trying new things in them so I think in that way it's kind of wonderful I mean I can imagine a future in 20 years time or whatever when being a music artist means to engage with the video game industry all day, every day, because it will be that huge and experiences in VR and the metaverse, blah, 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 blah. We can all kind of imagine that crossover cultural future. But right now, Snoop Dogg is one of the most pioneering uh, by the sounds of it. So I think it's really cool. I can't wait to see what... Do you know what I mean? Like, what is this first game going to look like? What what type of game is it going to be? Uh, there is no release date. Dog Souls. <laughs> Dog Souls, <laughs> that'd be class. There's no release date yet for their first game but you can be sure as soon as we hear about it or if there's any more news regarding Snoop Dogg's foray into the world of Fortnite you will be sure to hear about it here on from Fortnite and Snoop Dogg then and into what one two three four different award ceremonies involving game soundtracks do you want to start with the Grammy nominations, that's probably the one that most people will be aware of. Yeah, so the Grammy nominations came out uh, for Best Score Soundtrack for Video Games and Other Interactive Media. The actual awards ceremony will be on uh, Sunday, February 4th in 2024. But mixed reactions, I'd say, to the list. First up, it was Call of Duty Modern Warfare 2, which is Sarah Shackner. Uh, God of War Ragnarok, Bear McCreary, which was also nominated, interestingly, for Best Immersive Audio Album. So actually, that's a video game soundtrack nominated for two Grammys at the same time. Hogwarts Legacy, which is uh, Peter Murray, uh, J. Scott Ricosi and Chuck Myers. Star Wars Jedi Survivor, which is Stephen Barton and Gordy Harb. And Stray Gods, the roleplay musical, uh, which is the credited Jess Cero Tripod and Austin Wintory. Austin was overall the music director for that game, but there were other co-writers involved with him. So the thing about this is, Matt, there's there's positive takes and there's maybe more cynical takes. And this is always the case with any big awards show, probably with every category of Grammys. Probably people have, you know, hot takes on the Latin categories and the pop categories and no one's quite happy ever with any shortlist of nominees. 
To be positive, you say that these are all incredible composers, incredible scores. They all thoroughly deserve their nominations, especially, I would say, I mean, Austin keeps getting Grammy nominations, but he is such an experimental composer. He's a champion for video game music and he's incredibly generous with his advice and openness to to the whole industry. So that's the positive take. The cynical take which I slightly share just comparing this to last year's shortlist, and I've seen other people have this take, is that the list seems to be, and last time seemed to be, Big IP and Austin Wintery. Yeah. Call of Duty here, God of War, Harry Potter, Star Wars. They seem like very safe IP to be in the list, And I suppose that puts everything on Austin and Stray Gods to be the kind of the indie representative. But Austin is, of course, knows the Academy very well. He has uh, been nominated before a long time in the past for Journey for a Grammy and last year for a Grammy as well. So uh, he is someone who is well known to the Academy and to the industry uh, at large. What's your take on it, Matt? Are you more positive or perhaps a bit more cynical? I think a mix of both. So let's be honest, there are more games right now. Like It's been an absolute mad year for new releases. Do you know what I mean? There's so much stuff coming out. It's hard to keep on top of it. I think there's a couple of issues, or not so much issues, there's a couple of challenges facing awards such as these. One is you've got to remember that the I think this is only the second year now that the best score soundtrack for video games has been a thing. Of course, there have been other categories in which video game scores have been legible to submit themselves. So I think there is still a slight issue regarding accessibility and visibility, which will get better over time and more people become aware of it and more people start applying for this. Interesting that there's no big Japanese names because... I was was just going to say that, yes. There's at least, I think, one American composer per game, which I guess makes sense. The Grammys are in American awards. That makes me think, is this the kind of thing that maybe Japanese studios look at the nominations or they just never get to that stage because they just don't bother? Yeah, Yeah, do you know what I mean? Again, straight off the back, I'm kind of thinking... Legend of Zelda Tears of the Kingdom, regardless of whether or not you're a gamer, that is an IP that most people... Ah, uh, but it doesn't have an official soundtrack release. Yeah, that's a, again, so that's a third point again. But Final Fantasy 16 does. Yeah. You know, there's been some huge, huge games this year. As I said at the beginning, no one's ever going to be happy with any. No, there's, there's so many logistical things, if that's the right word, in terms of like how these lists are decided or whatever else it's cool to see stray gods on there um i'm happy to see star wars jedi survivor on there as well because i've read i've not played the game but i've read a couple of interviews with the composers and everything that they've done with the diegetic band in the game the cantina band and just generally the things that i've read about sound design like which i think now takes me on to a fourth point which is I feel like these submissions, the games that are going in for submissions, if it's for like best soundtrack or best audio or whatever else, which we'll get onto in the other awards, people need to know 
about the process that has gone into creating these soundtracks and just the sound design in general, I think, to actually kind of give a crap about them. I think back to when everybody was talking about the music in Control a few years back, and that was because I, I just remember seeing this story about a burning piano that I think the composer... Did. Can you remember reading that? Well, I, I wrote an interview with, with Petri Alanko and with Martin Stig Anderson. I think there might have been a burning piano, but there was all sorts of weird toasters and ovens and things. <laughs> That's what I mean, but it, there was a story there, do you know what I mean? And I just feel like that that helped get the game and its music in front of so many people. This is why we were talking to Jonas Turner yeah. last time, and he was saying about, you just have to explain it to people. Yeah, You might have to use some shorthand stuff to get their attention, like the Wilhelm scream or other kind of famous sound design tricks or stories of burning pianos and things like that. Yeah, But he is on a mission to to get the word out about sound design. I think this naturally segues into the Golden Joystick Awards. That's an interesting one because they don't have separate categories for best audio and best soundtrack or whatever else. They just have a combined category. Audio is so complicated, do you know what I mean? There's so much stuff going on. It's kind of like everyone's almost got their own interpretation of audio as well. Do you know what I mean? Is it sound design? Is it mixes? Like, is it furly? Like, what? It, it, or is it just something that encompasses all of these different areas? So, I feel like just to have a award that is just best audio, but then also lump soundtrack into that, which, let's be honest, the vast majority of players who are looking at these awards and they see best audio, they they're just going to think soundtrack, do you know what I mean? Because that's what most awards normally celebrate. So I don't know. I I would have thought they'd have they'd have thought it's just sound design, you know, rather than it's both. Yeah. So the Golden Joystick Awards, the nominees were Stray Gods, Hi-Fi Rush, Bomb Rush, Cyberfunk, Starfield, Legend of Zelda: Tears of the Kingdom, and the winner, Final Fantasy 16. I think the counterpoint to that would be to say awards are a bit stuffed in video games because you could have an animation award and someone could say well what do you mean is that animation of things in the world is that animation of characters there's like sub disciplines of animation it could be best graphics and then graphics is like 10 different departments and disciplines and special effects and concept art and blah 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 there are so many different subdivisions and departments it's so complex making a video game to kind of award every department or person properly would take, you know, 8,000 awards. Yeah. But it does seem a bit of an odd compromise with the golden joysticks. And then we have, of course, the Game Award nominees just came out. That award show will be on December 7th, 2023. So this does have a best score and music category, which seems sensible. That kind of covers original soundtracks and it covers licensed stuff. They have Alan Wake 2, which of course has some um, songs created for the game by uh, the Old Gods of Asgard. Is that the fictional game band name or the real band name? Yeah, that, I, I'm pretty sure that's the fictional band name. Uh, we have uh, Baldur's Gate 3, which is Borislav Slavov, uh, this huge hit this year. We have Final Fantasy 16, which is Masayoshi Sokum. We have Hi-Fi Rush, which is a team of people that I really should know their names because Laced Records did the vinyl record for. Apologies for them not being top of mind. Uh, obviously, fantastic soundtrack. Everybody go and buy the vinyl. Um, and then uh, Legend of Zelda Tears of the Kingdom, which is another big, big music team. 
There was some feedback on the Game Awards nominees from Alex Mukala, who is a YouTuber and composer, and also he presents various concerts around Europe. And he said, um, Zelda's soundtrack is formidable. However, Octopath Traveler 2 and Stray Gods deserve to be on this list more for many reasons. Of course, they're less popular games, which is probably the biggest reason why Zelda took their place. It's really tricky, isn't it? It is. And, I, and you know what? I think on that specifically, and I mean, probably didn't mean to word it like that, but I don't think it was Zelda that took those games' places. Let's be honest. It was probably either. I don't know. Do you know, it was probably some of the other games. These are all of the games that made the Game Awards list are all huge, relatively big uh, AAA games. But I think he does, he makes a very valid point because you've got to remember that a lot of the judges who sit on the panels for these and put their votes in, they are video game journalists. And there have been so many games to play this year. Do you know what I mean? So I think a lot of people, I think especially in the Game Awards, considering it is so heavily, like there's so many journalists involved with the nominations, I think a lot of it is what they've had time to play. Yeah, and of course, the other awards point that Luke Hebblethwaite from BAFTA said to us when we interviewed him early on in the GXM run is that um, score and music can mean many different things. And there's different ways of looking at it, like a horror game with a horrible soundtrack to listen to outside the game. But the soundtrack might be perfect within the game, and that might be what the judges or the jury or whoever's picking the shortlist have in mind Rather, So, for instance, Hi-Fi Rush is a music-based rhythm game. The music is everywhere. It's so important to the experience. The whole game hits you in the face with it, and it has a lot of charm. That could have been what got that game on this list. Alan Wake 2, they've got diegetic stuff and in-world stuff and presumably horror score as well and stuff like that, which is less obvious than something like Octopath Traveler 2, which is a, and I'm using air quotes, a more traditional JRPG soundtrack with overt melodies and and beautiful melodies. and Bloody brilliant as well, though. It is, it is a fantastic soundtrack and by all accounts a fantastic game as well. But, I mean, it is a short list. They, they have to cut something. I think quickly on that, like how I don't know many people who have played Octopath Traveler 2 and I loved the first game. And again, I think it's one of those where it's like in a year where we've had Alan Wake 2, Baldur's Gate 3, Final Fantasy 16, Hi-Fi Rush, Zelda Tears of the Kingdom, Starfield, New Cods Out, Star Wars, Hogwarts Legacy, like all of these games. Do you know what I mean? Like it's normally Octopath Traveler 2. If this was any other year, that would be like one of the first games that I played. But unfortunately this year, it's fallen further down. I hope I get around to playing it at some point when I find the time, God knows when. But I think... That's probably a similar picture for like a lot of people. Lastly, as well, there was the Hollywood Music and Media Award nominations. The actual show takes place on the 15th of November. So you will already know the winner before we do right now, because that's how time travel works. They interestingly have score video game console and PC category and song video game console and PC category. In the score category, we've got quite a different set, actually, from the other things, apart from two of them. We have Assassin's Creed Mirage, Atomic Heart, Baldur's Gate 3, Diablo 4, Final Fantasy 16, and New World, Rise of the Angry Earth. 
And in the song category, I'll just read the games. There's one from Blacktail, one from Just Dance 2024, one from Marvel's Spider-Man 2, uh, one from Rocksmith Plus, one from The World 3, and one from Tournament of Souls. I confess, I haven't heard of several of those games. Uh, interestingly, several of them are music games, Just Dance and Rocksmith. So that category and presumably the you know the process of applying it seems quite quite different to to some of these other ones uh, whereas the score for video games and that the other thing is like the cutoff times when's the submission beginning and end and all of that you know it's tricky it's tricky it's it's i'm sure people were happy about being nominated to that and congratulations to them and some people felt miffed missing out and yeah <laughs> that's awards i think what's interesting is when you just read out again like just more games that i completely forgot came out this year assassin's creed mirage like atomic heart diablo 4 diablo 4 i'm surprised that actually didn't make an appearance in the game awards golden joystick or the grammys because again a really really good soundtrack but i think there's just been lots of amazing soundtracks this year are there any games that didn't get a mention that now we're nearing the end of the year that you think had a particularly great soundtrack that people should check out i haven't played that many 2023 games and the ones I did play have got some recognition here, I would say. I've, of the soundtracks I've listened to and enjoyed outside the game, and of course that shouldn't be the only kind of, you know, criteria. I think Cheer uh, by John Robert Matz, who was the composer for that, I think it was an incredible score. Absolutely wonderful. And to not see it recognised... Anywhere among these is a bit disappointing, I'll be honest. Uh, there's several others. How about you? Sea of Stars, again, not a game I spent that much time with just because of the nature of how much shells there has been to play, but that is something that I had on loop just listening to while I was working. A really nice throwback to kind of the golden days of JRPGs and all of the sounds that you'd associate with them. Trepang, which I've mentioned a couple of times which is a must listen to for anyone that enjoyed doom 2016 or mick gordon's work in doom eternal and then not from a score perspective but resident evil 4 remake and the dead space remake did some really good stuff with sound designs you know what i mean playing those games with headphones on and with speakers with the full 3d setup like both of those games sounded incredible and i think a lot of work goes into sound design for these remakes i think it can be easy sometimes to go it's a remake do you know what i mean they've still got some similar to follow there's still a route there they're going down but yeah sound design in both of those games 10 out of 10 loved it okay well we should get on to our topic interview now Our special guest this week is Toa Dunn. He spent the last 10 years working as head of music at Riot Games, the video game studio best known for developing League of Legends. He did leave his position in February this year. He is now a consultant advising other game studios on their music strategies. But man, we had such an amazing chat. Our chat covered everything from virtual music groups in games 
how games are using music to amplify the strength of their IP today, and just loads of other things that are happening in the worlds of music and gaming that people need to know about. It is worth noting that for any listeners who aren't familiar with League of Legends, it is one of the biggest esports games in the world. Their annual esports tournaments, which are known as Worlds, they get millions of streams when they're streamed live every year. The tournaments themselves, they always collaborate with a major artist for the opening ceremony. That's been a thing since 2014, since the first collaboration with Imagine Dragons. Over the years, other big names that have lent their talent to the Worlds tournaments include Little Nas X, Paris, The Word Alive, Against the Current, Jeremy McKinnon from A Day to Remember, and many more. So yeah, if you're interested in learning more about the growing importance of music strategies for game companies, or if you just want to learn more about how KDA came about and what inspired the idea, and if the guys at Riot could have ever foreseen where we are today, where this is literally one of the biggest virtual groups in the world. So yeah, really hope you enjoy listening to this. Toa, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate you coming on. How are you doing? Yeah, doing well. Thanks for having me, man. Good, really good. excited about this. So, Man, I'm excited too. There is so much to chat about. Let's start with the beginning. Obviously, there's a lot of stuff I want to talk about regarding KDA and virtual bands in general, but I think it's just worth letting our listeners know how you came to join Riot Games back in 2013. And at that time, how important the company saw music to their overall strategy? Yeah. So like you said, I, you know, I joined Riot in early 2013. And when I joined, it was, it was pretty funny at the time because music wasn't core to the strategy yet. So Riot was definitely in this phase of really hyper-serving the players, right? That's really kind of the mission for Riot was to be the most player-focused game company in the world. They'd done some music, right? They had, I believe, a poem. They'd had a song, but they saw kind of the reactions to the players. And the players were really kind of expressing that they really enjoyed the music, especially around kind of the characters, the new characters that were being launched. And so when I came on, there was still just this idea of like, what else could we do with music? Like, what could music really be for Riot, for League of Legends? At the time, Christian Link was the composer there, the one sole composer. And uh, we used to laugh. He had had this kind of, it was like in the basement, and there was this, what looked like a closet, but that was his recording booth. <laughs> and you, you know, you could fit a, a desk and a chair in there. And then if you really tried, you could squeeze a person or two right behind them and kind of close the door so that you could really listen to whatever, you know, he was working on and, yeah. you know, a more isolated environment, you know, but that was kind of the start. And even then it was, it started off as a six month contract, really. It was just really explorative, like, hey, what, what, what could this be? So we had, you know, six months and a room, a conference room with, you know, some whiteboards and, and, a, and a desk. And so it was kind of like, all right, what should it really be here? And so the early parts of music at Riot really started off as just exploring things we were passionate about, right? Finding ways to how could we amplify what was going on in League, right? New characters. And at that time, 
you know, new champions were coming out at a more rapid pace, you know, so kind of, there were more opportunities to lean into music, both an orchestral kind of background to what would it be like to create songs. So in the early part, it wasn't core to the strategy. It was just more of, there was this idea of maybe music could be really rad. What should, what should that be? Most people will know Riot, at least from a music perspective, for KDA, because that is the biggest virtual group by far. But obviously KDA wasn't the first virtual group. I believe that was actually Pentakill. Can you talk me through that in terms of why why a virtual band? Why a metal band, first and foremost? Like I, I've got to ask, like as a Death Clock fan, like was there any like comparison? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, what was really great about Pentakill is it was a straight up passion project, right? It was a project that a bunch of folks from the team did on the weekend. And it emulated first from Pentakill, the skin line within League of Legends existed early on. And so there was, you know, these five characters, they had the same thematic skin, right? Which is like, they were kind of, they were very metal and together they were kind of this metal band. But um, what was really cool is you could find these videos, like, especially in like Brazil and other places where you would see players cosplay as them and act as if they were a band, right? And had some performances even, right? Just kind of as mock performances. And so we kind of asked that question, like, man, like, what if they were a real band? What would that be like? You know, and a bunch of our guys loved music. And I always kind of say this, with, you know, especially kind of the, some of the classical composers, they often do love metal. There's this interesting overlap of metal and classical music. I think what first started off as, you know, a song, like what could a song or a few songs be turned into an album pretty fast. And we got a lot of energy and excitement behind it. And we decided to say, hey, like, let's let's release this like a real album. And it's not going to be a, an album of, hey, this is a League of Legends metal album or anything. It's like, let's put a website up. We're going to put a single there, a little bit of information with the album to be released, you know, in a week later or something like that. Of course, there's like, you know, whether it was Deathlock and even Gorillas to an extent, right? From yeah, almost yeah. a virtual band. Because people weren't really using that word virtual band back then, right? And it wasn't our goal to create a virtual band. We just thought it was going to be cool. And it was fun. I think 2014 is when we released the first album. So yeah, technically Pentakill was our first band, you know, released an album out there. And it was also the first time we learned how to put music on at that time, iTunes and whatnot. So we we learned a lot, but yeah, technically Pentakill was our first band. And what what other lessons were you learning? Because obviously this is kind of like new uncharted territory for you and Riot. And then you've got to look at things like monetization, like amplifying these releases through like wider marketing campaigns and stuff like that. At the same time, you've then got the world's championships taken off for league. So you've got the likes of Imagine Dragons, collaborations with Imagine Dragons, I believe in 2014, Nikki Taylor, 2015, DJ Z in 2016. So there's all of this stuff going on 
like within Riot with such a core theme around music. Can you remember, was there a single point where things really started to culminate and it was like, we've got a lot happening with music. We need like a cohesive music strategy. Or was it a case of you already had a music strategy in place, but stuff just really started taking off? Yeah, it was... um it was rapid pace. And then it's funny, you kind of name all those things and I, it starts to feel very nostalgic of <laughs> looking back and understanding how many things were going on at the same time yeah. quite often. Right. There wasn't really a point, especially early on where it's like, all right, here's the music strategy and like music's going to really help and lead, you know, from a creative perspective, everything stacked, right. We, we had like a new opportunity and we mm -hmm. jumped in. Right. And it's like, oh, how can we how can we help and participate in this? You know, as worlds was starting to become something we wanted to make bigger and we were getting into, you know, 2014, like you said, there was a stadium that we were going to be in. Right. Which is the Sangnam's soccer stadium in Seoul, Korea. And we we're like, whoa, like this is huge. Esports from a broadcast yeah. standpoint was trying to figure it out as well as kind of live, you know, the live production standpoint. We really jumped in because we had created the year before um, at the, the Galen Center. Um, which is a much smaller venue, right? A basketball venue here in, in Los Angeles. And we had done this kind of opening ceremony where we combined a little bit of orchestral with like this kind of rock, mosh, like this rock band, which, you know, was our first kind of elevation of the opening ceremony. And so for 2014, we decided to go big. Um, we ended up working with Imagine Dragons, right? And it, Everything was, you know, for the first time, like, how do you, how do you work with a big artist like that? And how do you work with them in a way that's like collaborate on the song, as well as having a performance in a foreign country that you got to plan around and do travel and all that stuff. We used to joke that every project that we did was always a brand new project, meaning it was never... It was never like rinse and repeat. It was always like, oh, and now what if we could do this, right? So it was, yeah. it was like climbing this ladder that was going up this mountain each time, learning on the way, right? But it, there wasn't a pure music strategy in the first part. But it was as we got, I want to say about 2015, 16. And, you know, we had done a few things, right? We had done a few world events. Um, we had done Panic Hill. And really starting to think about strategically to an extent, mm -hmm. like, where do we go from here? And so that's where I first started working a bit on kind of a music strategy to encompass all of music across Riot and how do we, you know, allocate our resources and really where are we trying to go from here? And really thinking about the IP of League of Legends at that time. How do we make our characters memorable and, and things like that? And continue to also help amplify as these new products and things were coming out through Riot, like our next games potentially down the future at that time that we're thinking about interesting to think about it then but even things like arcane and stuff yeah and so and we had a lot of other explorations we also wanted to still do which was like storytelling and music we had a project i think it was um heartlight which is for this character varus and we tried this experiment of doing this comic book um, it's kind of like the origin story of this character and it was a comic kind of like a comic series but imagine a three three part comic series, but the middle comic is actually a music video instead, right? Um, for this big epic moment, which was like the, the the transformation of them. We learned a lot on the way, and then the real strategy, like the next kind of level of strategy for me, was what ended up becoming KDA. So at the time, you know, this was 2017, I think, at the time really asking the question of what was next. Like, hey, we've done really cool things. We've learned a lot. Where do we really think this could go? I was, at this time, I was really kind of obsessed about 
fandom to an extent, right? Like what it meant for fandom to have, you know, we'd seen there is this section, a pretty large section of gamers, and especially within League of Legends, that liked our music. And so I was kind of asking the question of like, well, what does that mean to have this audience that specifically loves the music of League of Legends and loves music? They actually identify as fans of music. And so I wanted to, I wanted to kind of then look into that and say like, all right, how do we hyper-serve that audience? How do we really deliver, build fandom around this? And then I kind of landed in this place of, I think, you know, as a, as a super fan of music, like I would love to have like the super band, like what is the ultimate band, right? And what is the ultimate experience around that band? And that's where I started to land in like, oh, and then we'd been talking about this kind of like pop music opportunity, but didn't really know how to approach it. And then that's when I kind of really designed this approach towards, um, at that time, I called it pop stars. That was just the, what I yeah. called them. That was really in digging deep into like the strategy of like what I thought music and how thinking of music not only as a supportive part of the different products at Riot, but how music could lead the way in mm. things, right? Like we could be innovative. We could kind of push into other um, mediums and get into storytelling and stuff like that. So that's when the strategy really started to kind of solidify itself. To give some important background and context as well, KDA is a K-pop band. It is worth pointing out that League of Legends is incredibly popular in South Korea. Has South Korea always been your main audience or is that something that just kind of happened? And how did that influence your decision to make KDA a K-pop group rather than just going versatile pop music that's in the charts? Yeah, I don't think it was, and I'm not quite even sure too, it's like about you know, South Korea being the main audience, so to speak, yeah. right? Like we have some pretty, like Brazil's got an amazing audience. China, of course, as well as a mm. large audience, right? And so just by pure numbers, you know, um, the Chinese audience is, is the largest. And that's probably true for most kind of products or IPs. If you resonate with the Chinese audience, like they're going to be yeah. bigger. But a lot of the decisions as far as like why, so I guess the question is, why did we go with KDA, right? Mm. Why K-pop specifically? There were some things that really lined up very well, right? And and part of it was we knew the next Worlds was going to be in Korea, right? Yeah. And and it was a big event because Korea is a powerhouse, especially on the esports side, right? Like I'm a big Faker fan, so you know from T1. So knowing we were going there, we wanted to make it a big moment for them, right? Celebrate kind of the the home of esports to an extent. It was also us coming back, right? We were there in 2014. But we're now coming back and like esports was on this on another level at that time. Yeah. And then K-pop, we kind of caught this run, right? Like when we were first getting into the project, K-pop wasn't quite big globally yet, right? Like BTS was starting to do their thing, but like Blackpink wasn't really on the map yet. So we did kind of catch that run as far as like K-pop was really starting to blow up at the same time that we were working on this, you know, and so a lot of things really lined up as to why we should even be doing this, right? And and quite frankly, too, is we were just really excited about it. I, I remember one of the first like, composer by the name of Sub, like he was one of the first guys I pitched this to in talking with him in the first time. And he kind of turned around and told me, he was just like, hey, I just want you to know, like, I'm actually a pretty big fan of K-pop from back in the day. Yeah. And we went down this like three hour hole of just like, <laughs> oh, have you heard this music? And have you seen this? And like, that's what you need in a, in a yeah. project like that. You need to find where that energy is really going to come from. And that's where it first sparked. And then he wasn't the only one, right? There was more people who, as we kind of like started to talk about that project, like other people were like, oh, 
ooh, I like this and this is what I know about it and kind of adding to the pie. So yeah, that's kind of how we landed in KDA in K-pop. You've got this idea, right? But then you've got to source the songwriters, you've got to source the performers. How do you find these people? Like, had you already built up a list of contacts that you knew would be the right fit for something like this when the opportunity came along? Was it a case of just doing research and outreach into who you thought were the right people? Like, how do you pull together all of the people that need to be involved? Yeah, so it's a mix of many things, right? Like people you 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 know and would want to work with. At Riot, we had a by that time, we had an in-house music team. So, you know, in-house composers and had marketing and branding, um, you know, music production kind of all in-house. So we could produce music from soup to nuts, everything from ideation, creation, recording, producing to release and market, right? And distribute it. What I like to do in, is understand, like, what are we really trying to achieve? And mm. like, what are the capabilities we really need? And then from there, you can kind of source, like figure out like, all right, what are the ones we have versus what are the ones we need to find? What we needed help in from, from the get-go, I was like, all right, so how are we going to write Korean female lyrics? Yeah, Because none of us were going to do that, right? <laughs> and so that's, of course, where we got to lean in and find work with some really talented songwriters. And we worked with a few, you know, Harlow, I think for Pop Stars. We worked with uh, Becca Boom for some of the other KDA songs as well. Incredibly talented K-pop songwriters, right? or just pop and K-pop songwriters. And then working also with some talent to help us on translating some of the parts if they were first written in English, but decided to like, oh, this should be Korean for here, like the rap, for example, in Pop Stars um, by a colleague. Let's go! Figure out all the different levers you can pull, right? That there isn't just like one way to do it. And every project was different. How much we, you know, was done internally versus how much is done externally. Um, that's kind of something you flex on depending on the needs and what you're trying to achieve. So a bunch of it was like people we knew, um, people internally. And and that kind of goes to, right, when when I think about this kind of high-level music strategy. So I kind of ab abstract music strategy and think of it from there's this kind of understanding from a very high-level kind of 10,000-foot point of view of what are the superpowers of music and how do you organize around that, right? Both from like a talent standpoint to how do you really think you're going to create and distribute it? I often think that music's kind of an undervalued um, and, and not maybe not undervalued, like overlooked. It's yeah. often overlooked on like what it's able to do. So I had built over time once I was really understanding like, oh, what I thought we could do with music. Right. So there was a key point when I was like, for what our ambitions were specifically at Riot, I was like, I need to pull some of these things in house because if they're external, it can be very complex because music copyright and things like that are super yeah. complex and can slow you down and potentially prevent you from doing some things. And especially in the kind of new media world, right? We were in video games and we're very digital and on the internet and global, right? Which can be really hard to do in this space. So that's why I built a lot of capabilities in house. So that I didn't have to outsource and figure out like, how do we 
go over this bridge now because yeah. like, we we also wanted to be here. It's like we could just go over these bridges, and so that was part of the also like this internal strategy that I was building is understanding which capabilities I should have in house so that I could really flex into the places that I wanted us to because we wanted to kind of pave our own road in certain areas, and so that's actually where I think a lot of like some of the strategical things were done yeah. was really more of like what what should be in house versus not, and then. 2018, same year KDA launches. That is the same year, I believe, that they play Worlds. And Worlds, I don't think we've mentioned this yet, is essentially the World Cup, the Super Bowl for League of Legends, right? It's the global tournament for League of Legends every year. You amplify that with a big music partnership. 2018 was KDA. I believe the finals were watched by 200 million concurrent viewers. Those numbers Pretty are nutty. so wild. And then off the back, like I was looking up at some figures earlier, their first single pop stars, 573 million players now on YouTube. KDA has like 3.1 million monthly listeners on Spotify. How did you all feel? How did the team feel when you saw the overwhelming like positive reaction and the figures coming in? Like, What was the reaction like? Super validating, right? I mean, did we expect it to be as big as it was? I mean, no. We were really excited about it. And so really what we were hoping was that our players would be just as excited about it as us, right? And so there was a lot of energy kind of radiating about it within Riot at the time. So yeah, we didn't expect it to be that big. And what was really interesting too is how much it radiated even outside of our player base, right? Our marketing and everything was really pointed at our audience. Everything we did was for our players. And I think it was it's really interesting interesting to see how much it kind of bled outside of that, right? Into kind of these other pockets that kind of gravitated towards it. For some people, KDA was an introduction into K-pop for people at that time. And then for some people, it was this, it was the introduction into league, right? And sometimes it may not, they may not have played the game because of KDA, but they became very aware of the game and the IP mm. because of it. The fact that it has the numbers it has, you know, and I, you know, I think, it, I think KDA has something like a billion streams or something like that in total yeah. overall. And it's pretty massive and pretty cool. And, and and for me, KDA was the proof point, right? Where I was trying to ask that question around like, what is fandom for this kind of space? And I think as we think about the virtual artists, and again, it wasn't, I wasn't trying to say, oh, I want to be in the virtual artist yeah. industry. But when you kind of look at how you can approach virtual artistry, how people can, you know, work with digital assets and avatars and do music, like I think it becomes really interesting for the future too. You're talking about doing all this for the fans, right? And I mm -hmm. feel like one of the main reasons KDA has been so successful is because league players like these characters. They identify with them. They buy into the journey. It's not you just choosing like a random bunch of small league characters, or maybe if this was like another game IP, like characters that are not really that big and doing something with them for diegetic music. It's no, you've made carefully calculated choices to focus on characters, bring out their stories. How important do you think that has been to the overall success of KDA? I, do you think you would have been able to find the same levels of success if you built the band using different league characters? Or do you think the specific characters that you've chosen were like a contributing factor to their success? I love this topic. How did we come up with the lineup Right. Why did we choose who we chose? So the way I like to look at it, and this was a fun learning process for us, um, or at least it was fun for me, <laughs> I should say. But League had at the time, you know, over 120 characters or something yeah. like that. 
I, I look at it as a spectrum, right? You can choose the very business-wise ones, right? What's great at you know many game companies is often if they have the data, they they know a lot about their players, right? And so they can know, hey, of of all, all the characters we have, what are the ones that sell the most skins? Let's just say that, right? Like they, yeah. they'll know that information, so they can make choices on that and saying like, hey, if you if you choose from this pool of characters, like they're going to sell the most, right? If you choose over here, the bottom bar, like we may not sell very many. And then there's the other approach from a creative perspective, right? Of just like, hey, this is the band, and these are the kind of characteristics we need. And so you can look across League of Legends characters and be like, oh, that character right there would be a great diva, right? But if that character is way low on the like, hey, not many players play that character, and so it's not going to sell very many sales, like that becomes a discussion. Because uh, the last thing that you'd want to do is just have this really cool lineup and then sell no skins, for example. But you can also argue, you don't want to just choose from like this bucket of like, all right, here are the top characters from League of Legends and just force them to be a, you know, like, for example, like what if one of them was a dragon? I'm like, oh, well, like, all right, one of the characters is just going to be a dragon. Is that creatively good? I mean, maybe, but also it might not be. So you need to find this balance. That was like an exercise and process that we did of like, how do we find great characters that really fit the the characteristics that we're looking for? And then how do we also be good to, on the business side and make sure we're making smart business decisions on this? And so it's less of like just one coming in and making the decisions. It was a very cooperative discussion and figuring out like, okay, how do we make this right? And, and I think we landed really well. And what, what's, what's really interesting is there's these things where... So my hunch is like you could take a character potentially that might be not the greatest business decision. They're kind of like, oh, not too many players play it or not too many players buy skins using that character. And it was interesting to see how some of the ones that you didn't have a whole lot of expectation end up doing quite well because it was just so creatively cool, like so creative where people just like, mm, like I want to, you know, like, and it may or may not have been significant, but like for some of them it was. And so that's always an interesting situation where you're just like, man, we didn't have the biggest expectation, but that that's just what ended up happening is they became quite successful. Are there any ways you've brought music into the game through skins? Because I tried doing some research into this initially and I found that some characters had skins that almost integrated music as like music kits. Like what, what's the whole story around that? I can see you smiling as if it's like a weird music oh, weird, thing no. or no, 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 no. Um, it's just pretty complicated. Right. So yeah. I guess to start, right? So League of Legends is a very competitive game, right? Mm -hmm. it, it, I, I compare it to like playing a sport. And so when people are playing their sport or playing League of Legends, while playing, music can get in the way. I always reference basketball because I go to a bunch of basketball games. But if you go to like a Laker, Lakers game and you're watching, like the music plays, but as soon as the, the ball comes in, like they're about to start the game, the music goes away. Because the players need to be able to hear themselves and there's the sneakers and like that's part of the game experience and they need that. And it's kind of, kind of the same in League of Legends is the music gets in the way and many players actually mute the music or remove the music so that they're not hearing it because they need to hear if something happens over here. They need to hear mm -hmm. that. If they miss it because the music, then like that's not a great experience for them. And so there's not a whole lot of opportunity in League that we found that we could like really have music participate in the game. But one way we did is so maybe you came across, which was DJ Sona. Yeah, that was, and that, so, that was exactly it. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, taking Sona and turning her into this like DJ. And so her kit is very musical, right? And, or, well, she is very, she is musical. And like when she does, you know, a move like her ultimates, you know, it's kind of like the strum of the harp, so to speak, right? So there's kind of these musical elements. 
And so we kind of amplified that. And in thinking about her thematic from a DJ perspective, like, all right, if she's like this kind of modern DJ or like more future for DJ, and we gave her three forms, right? So there was one that was like ethereal, which was very kind of chill mode. Mm. Lo-fi wasn't quite around then. All right, we had one that we called concussive, which was kind of this blend of like metal dubstep kind of feel, right? And then we had one that was more kind of like dance electronica, uh, right? Kind of four to the floor a little bit. And so what we wanted to do was like, all right, while playing, it was almost like while playing as Sona, could we lean into like being a DJ and what the feel is and manipulating, you know, the music and the song. So there are ways like as she her her the music would progress as you're leveling up in the game. And we created this really complicated kit to be able to do that in game. And I think it was it was a really it was probably one of the the dopest like skins at the time that we yeah. did. Very, very complicated. It also requires just a lot of work, like a lot of work just to get it to work. And so I don't think we ever really revisited it because it made sense for DJ Sona, but I don't think it made sense for like any other characters because she was kind of musical. And then I guess on that, if you try forcing that, I imagine that's the kind of thing that league players, your fan base would see through and be like, oh, hang on a second. Why is this hero suddenly got music? They've got <laughs> nothing to do with music. So why oh, are you yeah. dropping music kits and stuff like that? Got to ask, obviously... KDA, massively successful. I think that turned a lot of heads in the music industry and in the gaming industry in the same way that the Travis Scott concert in Fortnite turned a lot of heads on both sides. There's a lot of collaborations that are happening now, not just with new virtual band formations. I mean, Netmarble, big Korean game studio specializing in mobile games. They've got Mave now, obviously. Also didn't realize that PUBG, Crafton PUBG had their own virtual band as well. So you've got virtual bands on that side. Then at the same time, you've got companies like Activision, who have just obviously done the Sephirim, the K-pop collaboration with Overwatch 2. There does seem to be an explosion in K-pop music, but we don't want to reach a point, right, where it's a case of get this big K-pop artist in just to do this thing with our game because it's going to reach loads of people and it's going to be big. It always needs that calculated approach. So do you think there's a risk with this growing number of like K-pop collaborations and focus on music that there's a risk there that some people could get it wrong? It's really easy to get it wrong, right? I think it's yeah. actually harder to get it right, right? So, I mean... I think even during the good times, there are still ones that have been good and some of them that have gotten kind of, I don't want to call it wrong, but just didn't land great, yeah. so to speak. Right. And so, and I think that's just like a, an, an indicator of interest in the space. I, I think everything is kind of in ebbs and flows. K-pop has definitely had its really big wave and is mm. still like, you know, they're still really leaning into it and especially with hype and what they're doing kind of really pushing kind of K-pop through many of these different channels. And so, yeah, I expect to see it a lot. I mean, I've definitely, I, to this day, even still, I see, I've had decks come across, you know, where I've been in pitches and, you know, talking with teams and yeah, I see a few frames, a few pictures referencing KDA and I can, yeah. you know, definitely tell. Um, and and <laughs> proud, seen that proud dad moment when you see those. Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, oh yeah. Or maybe, maybe they're just doing it just to really get, get me locked into it. And I think, Will it ever reach oversaturation? I mean, I, that's why I think everything has its ebbs and flows. If you do it too much, eventually the players are going to be like, okay, this isn't exciting, right? Like it, it's too expected. And once it, you get those diminishing returns to a certain point, the organizations will start looking for the next thing. What I like about gaming for the most part is, you know, gaming does live in the space of innovation, right? Like I do believe 
you know, players don't want to play the same game over and over. Each new game has to kind of bring something fresh. We don't want to play the same old game. And so that also leads to opportunities of innovation. Mm -hmm. But I think music is really powerful in that it's like for many different facets that it has, right? Like from a cultural standpoint, what music does from a human, almost like anatomical level, right? From anything from how it can it evoke emotions, how it can make you feel, how it can like it, like, right? How it can connect to us. I think music is also very powerful. So there's, there's these different levers you can lean into music. And so this is something I've been focused on now is like, okay, that's when I think about music strategy is like, you know, some people will pull the same, like, that's what we're seeing. Some people are pulling the same lever over and over and over. It's like, all right, how many times can you have a band perform for this, for this specific thing? Whereas there's other things you can actually do with music. And I think that's the key. And some of the evidence that it's there is because music has been around forever and it's not going to go away. Right. It's such a quintessential part of the like human experience in general. And so once you really understand the different levers of music, I think that's when it gets exciting because there's so many other cool things to do. On that then, are there any trends that you're kind of noticing at the moment in between music and gaming where you're thinking, right, there's something here. We've not quite seen the ripple effect yet, but there's something that looks like it has the potential to take off. I don't think the music industry really truly knows what it looks like in the next even five years from now. Yet you have kind of the artist space, like musicians, really trying to say like, hey, how does like how do I become sustainable? Like, what is the future of being a musician now? Especially some things are starting to change, you know, distribution, like we can get distribution now, right? We don't have to go through the just three channels to potentially get distribution. I don't even have to be on the radio and I could be really successful. There's globalization too. I could be really big in this location specifically and be quite successful. So what does a successful musician look like? Um, and, And could some of them be virtual artists, for example? Like there's all this opportunity. And so there's like this need and demand for that. The answer isn't here yet. And I think... I was able to kind of show or kind of have some proof points of moving in that direction. And so I'm actually excited about like what the next five years looks like in this space. And like, what are those products, platforms and tools that are built and things like that? The glocalization thing is super interesting because that's something that I've noticed quite a lot that's going on. So two recent examples that I can think of, there's Honor of Kings, which is obviously the biggest mobile game in China, absolutely massive. I think it made like a hundred million or something last month, which just for China (laughs) is wild. But they've just launched in Brazil, which you'll know is a massive gaming market. And to support that launch in Brazil, they did a partnership with DJ Airlock, obviously a massive Brazilian DJ. At the same time, just looking at what Activision was doing to promote the launch of Call of Duty Modern Warfare 3, where they've partnered with, uh, I forgot the names of them, but a French rap duo, um, something else in Latin America. It seems like game studios now are looking to regionalize music partnerships to launch and tap into fandoms in like specific regions. Like that really seems to be taking off. And that's good as well, right? Because it comes back down to everything that you've been saying about the success of KDA and Riot's music strategies in terms of do it for the players. So if you're speaking to the wants of local regional gaming audiences and giving them music talent that they're aware of and that they resonate with, hopefully that's going to deliver some cool stuff rather than just getting in a big name who's maybe done like loads of different things with video games before. I'm sure we both know we can mention quite a lot of those, but we won't mention them. But do you know (laughs) what I mean? Rather than getting the same old names back and back and back again, just because they're associated with gaming, choosing more regionalized artists. I think that's really cool. 
Yeah, no, exactly. And and this all falls into this thing, right? Like where the way I say it is like, imagine a world where you come from a certain region, though, say you come from, you know, the America, right? And you have some big musician being kind of forced down your throat that comes from maybe a country and culture that you don't have any relationship with, don't have any kind of like any, like a whole lot of synergy with, right? Like it's, it's harder to connect versus you see an artist from your country that maybe you've even known about since they were young, right? It's this connection. And when you do that kind of localization, when you lean into the culture of that audience that you get into, like, it's just a deeper connection. And, and, and people also feel seen to an extent, like, oh man, like, I think like Latin, Latin American music, like is a great like reference to that, right? Where they're a culture of music and just all these artists that have come up, like they embrace them and they love them. And as they go global, right, it's just like this great thing. So yeah, there's been less and less of this kind of like, hey, let's just take this one global artist and everybody should like it, especially as the world has gotten smaller because of, yeah. you know, the internet and technology, right? We're finding more culture out there. Right? And I guess just to wrap up everything that we've spoken about today, if you could give three pieces of advice to the music industry, whether that's artists, labels, management, who want to pursue activations in games or gaming initiatives, like what would your three lessons be to them? Yeah, so I think one thing is authenticity. If you love gaming, you know, if you love games and things about games, like it, it becomes easier. And I would say, look at the things that you love in games. Are there certain games you love? Lean into the things that are authentic to you. You know, it gets a bit more difficult if you're so detached from video games and you're just like, hey, video games, put my music in your thing. I, I think that's a different conversation. So I think it's like authenticity is really big. Two, I know this can be a stress for some artists, but I'd say like get in touch and engage with the community. You'd be surprised how much they'll bear hug you if they feel like you're connecting with them and like you almost feel like one of them. I think that's something that's often overlooked is how to connect with the audience, the specific audience to an extent, right? Um, it was something that we had to, we opened up the door more to, like when we worked with the first example, Imagine Dragons in 2014, is they played League of Legends a ton. They just ended up showing people that they were playing. And, you know, people saw that like, oh, they, they do play. Like this wasn't their first time playing. You could tell that they played and that does a lot. And then three, I think two is, if you do want to really get in the space, think of a way to bring something, I don't want to say unique, but think of like how you can work with the game companies, the game, the video games, meaning don't chase the, hey, license my music track for X, right? Like for your trailer or put it in the game. Personally speaking, I think that's just, I think it's, it's cool. But the real opportunity is integration, the different ways and how deep you can integrate. Like if there is a big moment or something they're doing, how can you make it where it's not just a song? that's being played across something, right? How can you integrate both from as an artist and your song? How can you amplify the experience, right? Like think deeper integration, right? So it's not just a licensing thing. It's there's multiple touch points. Think from that aspect, because I think that potentially brings more value to the players. And that at the end is what most game developers are looking for is how do you drive more value to the players? Really good advice for that. Thank you. If people want to find you online, so obviously you're not at Riot anymore. Just want to let us know quickly what it is that you're doing now. Where can people find you online if they want to learn more about you? 
So LinkedIn is like the best for me. It's it's like my inbox to the world. LinkedIn. I'm also on Instagram a bit, you know, to an extent. But LinkedIn, if you really want to kind of reach out to me, um, always feel free to hit hit me up, connect, or send me a DM in there. I mean, a lot of stuff I'm working on is really just working with kind of teams on the opportunity of what a like a music strategy actually is. Kind of like I was talking about from a you know a ten thousand foot point of view, especially in this world where there's a lot of noise. How do you really stick out, right? How do you shine and be different? And then also, how do you build long-lasting disciples or fans, loyal fans of your, you know, game IP or product itself? And just understanding like how music actually can be a critical role to that. So that's what I've been doing a lot of. So I do some consulting and advising is what I'm doing now. Thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure as always. Take care. Yeah, you too, man. Great. Thanks for having me. That scheme of all the things that you would change, but it was just a dream. It is time for Done in 60 Seconds, where we take just one minute to recommend something to each other. It could be a piece of music, it could be a whole soundtrack album, something else, it could be a podcast or whatever. Great, Tom, what have you got for me this week? There is an indie game creator called Cosmo D, who has made such games as Off Peak, Tales from Off Peak City, The Norwood Suite, which is themed around a fictional jazz musician and it's absolutely the most hilarious and psychedelic thing you will play in a long time. He's also a musician and has a sort of artist non-de-plume slash band called Archie Pelago and also puts stuff out as Cosmo D. He does his own soundtracks and they're just this fantastic kind of weird jazz, dance, electronica fusion thing that defies genre and is just really set his games apart and really set his music apart from anything really he's just a brilliant creator and i think everyone should uh, check out any of his soundtracks particularly the i think off peak and tales from off peak city can be found on streaming services you had me at archipelago <laughs> which just sounds like a real cheeky character from dandy or something let's take a listen I can't believe you've never shown me this before. This is like 100% my favourite genre of music. Instead of catnip, this is matnip. Yeah, this is genuine. Like This is really, really, really good. I'm going to smash this all day tomorrow. Thank you for bringing that into my world. That, genuinely, that is really, really good. I was getting like bits of Bonobo there with like other just like submersion orchestra. Just like, where it was just really, honestly got me a little bit excited. <laughs> like listening to that now, I'm... I'm buzzing. I was going to make <laughs> my recommendation absolutely pale in comparison, given I have gone for another Matt Umbler special deep cut. So, right, start the timer. Right, so, bit of a weird one. Our man, Ryoichi Sakamoto, who most people, well, the man's a legend, you know what I mean? Yellow Magic Orchestra, loads of film scores under his belt, various other solo projects. 
He lent his talents to a variety of video games over the years, some of which were quite weird, some of which were very weird, and one of those very weird games is called LOL lack of love developed by the development studio called love the lick also responsible for moon remix rpg adventure and ufo a day in the life this is a game where you essentially play as an organism just doing weird stuff establishing symbiotic relationships with other organisms sleeping urinating not really doing much at all but the soundtrack is absolutely brilliant let's take a listen That is an extremely dreamy Dreamcast track. You just sort of associate that console with a chilled out electronica of a really weird bent. It also reminded me, and this is, I don't know if it's a deep cut or not anymore. Uh, When synthesizers were still very, very new in the 70s, there was a Japanese composer arranger called Iseo Tomita, who was an expert synth recordist i guess you would say and he did various albums of classical music and the my favorite one is when he did all sorts of different pieces by claude debussy the french composer from the turn of the 20th century so tomita kind of took these already very strange and weird and out there debussy compositions harmonically and just did the weirdest like panning and crazy synth sounds and recorded them with with the sort of state of the art synths at the time but it's aged particularly well and i actually if anyone enjoys this slice of uh, uh, sakamoto and lack of love and that kind of dreamy weird dreamcast vibe i strongly recommend actually as a counter recommendation going and checking out the album Snowflakes Are Dancing, which is, yeah, absolutely, will blow your brain apart. It will take you on a journey. It's like a headphones, lie back, close your eyes, kind of listen, and it goes to some very, very, very strange places, even if you are a fan and already know Debussy's kind of piano music. Oh, that's another another one for tomorrow then. (laughs) Definitely a headphone listen. Unfortunately, that's all we've got time for on this episode of the GXM podcast. Thanks so much for joining us as we explore the intersection between video games and music. Please, 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 we'd love it if you could share this podcast with other people, tell other people about it. It would also be brilliant if you could subscribe and the ultimate step would be to leave us a positive review on your podcast service of choice, especially Apple Podcasts. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram and threads at GXM Podcast. Apologies, we don't check threads that often, but who does? I'm T. Quilfell on Twitter, that's T-Q-I-L-L-F-E-L-D-T. Matt is Matt Ombler on Twitter, that's Matt with only one T. If you've got any feedback, hit us up at gxmpodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. The show was produced by both of us. It was edited by me and music was by Zach Foster. Thanks so much to Toa Dunn for being interviewed for this podcast.